0: Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. around here as always, and today I have on a special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Charles Soule. Uh, Charles, you've been putting out books and comics and um, a lot of written content for quite some time. What does it feel like to be called a New York Times bestseller?
1: It's It's one of those things that you know, when you, when you think maybe you're going to be a writer when you're little, at least for me, this was the case. So I started thinking about being a writer when I was probably around fourth grade. It's like, that might be a career path that would be interesting. And I took some zigs and zags before I finally got there, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, one of the ways that I, I thought about being a writer was by looking at the New York Times bestseller list. Like I would see it in in the paper, you know, I, at that time I was living in Grand Rapids. So it was the Grand Rapids Press, but they would publish the New York Times bestseller list as just part of their material, and um, so I I had a sense that these were like, you know, notable books by notable people. And uh, when you're thinking about sort of the aspirations of being a book, or being a novelist, everybody has their own kind of goals, but being on the New York Times bestseller list was certainly a big one for me. Um, And then to not only make it, but to have the book that you're talking about, Light of the Jedi, um, which came out in January, debut at number one, was uh, on the hardcover bestseller list. Like that's, that's the pinnacle. I mean, they're, you know, I'm I'm kind of a numbers guy and an analysis guy, and so I, I went and um, looked back at how many people have actually achieved that goal, um, that that landmark since they started publishing the list back in the '30s. And it's it's really not it's not very many because books used to stay on for like years at a time back in the early days. So so the number is like it's like a triple digit number um, that have actually been number one New York Times bestseller. So I'm I'm. Very proud of it. It's very exciting. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but once is certainly enough.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Even today, um, I'm curious your thoughts about the current state of novels and and books, because Mm -hmm. it feels like there's a debate over – Where they what role they play in society, but it it still has that cachet, and it's something that that I could look up from time to time. Uh, I've got a lot of books here in my office, and Mm -hmm. New York Times bestseller out just to see. uh, I like to read widely, and uh, that's a great spot just to see what is out there and something that I might have missed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, books, it's an interesting job because it's certainly, there's so much, you know, you think about you know, the, the entertainment that people had available to them in the, in the 1930s versus the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And, and the way that, uh, the competition for our attention has fractured so significantly, right? Like we've lost some things like arguably, you know, newspapers and magazines don't take up, take up as much mental headspace as they used to, but yeah. the internet and all its many forms of delivering content, including things like this podcast we're doing right now have just swallowed up people's, uh, sort of, time and and even i would argue their attention spans and patience so you know the novel is a is a is a long form type of entertainment you know it's 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 something you commit to you spend time with it or you know a nonfiction book about any topic you might choose like whatever it is you know you're you're kind of in for the long haul as opposed to watching you know tiktok videos for two hours like it's a different it's a different experience (laughs) and um, I think that not everybody's as into it as they used to be. I think the number, when you, when you look at the numbers for best selling novels, um, not mine, of course, mine was a massive runaway success, but like, you know, you can, you can make the New York times list at the low end with like, you know, depending on the week, depending on whether or not Stephen King or John Grisham or whoever has a book out that week, you can make those numbers. You can make the list with like 3,500 copies, 5,000 copies sold, you know, numbers that seem low. Um, the upper echelons are obviously still, you know, very impressive numbers and, and so on. But like people just don't don't read as much or they read in different ways, uh, which is, I think it's fine. You know, I, I, I'm sort of nostalgic for, you know, I grew up with a lot of books and I, I loved reading. But, um, you know, as long as people are still in concrete stories, which they definitely are through all the different mediums, I think it's okay.
0: Yeah. And audiobook obviously plays a role. I don't know if that's measured it, on the New York Times bestseller list or not. But, um, it is, you know, I have. So I have certain types of books I prefer to listen to and certain types of books I prefer to read. And so like I like to say fiction or history or high level business books, those are books that I can usually listen to. Um, because my my my, um, my focus obviously can be distracted a little bit easier if I'm, I'm listening, um, but it's usually easier to hop back in if I if I get distracted for a few seconds. Whereas mm-hmm. something more like technical, um, you know, philosophy or a religious piece or uh, you know some kind of I'm looking at book over here, um, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more meaty. I really had to sit down and read it. Um, but the other thing I've learned is is that I, and Sherlock Holmes was the series that brought this out. The rate I can't remember who the the narrator is. The way that he reads it. I think it's better than I would have read it. And so it helps me mm-hmm. think about how to read books better because I'm hearing someone else read to me. And so um some people kind of they're kind of down on audiobooks, but I think they actually can make you a better reader because you can hear a, a professional narrator teach you how to read by how he's reading to you.
1: I I read books in hard copy, I read paperback and hardcover, I read comic books, I read graphic novels, I read um in audiobook form, I read ebook form. Mm-hmm. I have an e-reader that I use a lot. So I don't think it matters. A book's a book, and I think each one of those formats has their place. Um, you know, if I'm going to go to the beach, I like to have a hard copy book. It's just sort of, you know, I enjoy sitting in the sand and or by the pool, whatever. If I'm lucky enough to be there, uh, that's pleasant. But if, um, you know, I'm, I like to run, I'm a runner, so and that's all audiobooks. So I get a lot of reading done when I'm exercising that way. But it's it's as you said, not every book works that way. Like for if I'm doing research for a project. Uh, that has to be in hard copy because I have to be able to mark it up. I need to be able to flip back and forth. I need to be able to put little tape flags on it. So I know where the relevant information was. Um, but, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm reading something just sort of for enjoyment, uh, particularly if it's like, you know, before I go to sleep or something like that, a lot of times that's the e-reader because, Mm. um, it's very portable. It's very easy. It has like a backlight, you know, all that stuff. So it's every, everything kind of works in its own way, but, um, you know, audio, audio books for me, they can't be too, they can't be too, just like you said, they can't be too dense, can't be too complicated, can't have, can't have a uh, world building that's too insane because really, you know, I'm usually running and like, and it's easy to get distracted and it's, you know, you, you, your head kind of goes out of it and then you lose the thread. But yep. as long as people are paying attention to stories, I kind of don't care how they do it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now you have a background in law. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, do you think that helps you in this process? Because obviously, going through law school requires an immense amount of studying and writing, and you know, formulating arguments and stuff. And you know, to write a good novel or a nonfiction book, you're actually making a long argument. You know, you're trying to persuade me of uh, yep. the believable story. Um, how much does that impact your writing?
1: I think it, it has had an extraordinary influence, uh, sort of on both a macro and a micro level, and a, and sort of a sort of a subconscious and conscious level. Like I. I incorporate legal information into a lot of my writing. I did a, for example, I've I've done a lot of writing for Marvel comics. So I've gotten to write a lot of their big characters. And uh, so I did one of the longest runs on Daredevil, for example, Daredevil is the blind uh, superhero from Hell's Kitchen, where he's also Matt Murdoch, you know, vigilante attorney. And so Uh, so I used a lot of my own experience in, in writing that character. I wrote a big run on She-Hulk, um, in some of my novels I've incorporated legal stuff. So, so that's sort of the the direct, um, conscious incorporation of legal stuff. But then below that, it's, it is very much about whenever you're making a fictional, a piece of fiction, you are presenting an argument to the, to the reader, uh, and you want them to suspend their disbelief. You want them to believe in the fictional world you're trying to sell them basically. And so... I think being able to do that across a, a case or an immigration filing, which is a lot of the work I did, is is very consistent with telling a story. Um, but the other really huge two things that I think were really important to me are that law doing law gives you a huge focus on details. You becoming you have to become extremely detail oriented because you can't you just can't fudge the law. And particularly again in my practice area, which was very very code based, uh, immigration work is is you have to understand thoroughly several different bodies of law and be able to apply them to your cases and those can change literally on a day-to-day basis some of them are just based in kind of USCIS custom there it's very it's complicated so you have to keep track of all that and know exactly how one little change is going to affect all of your clients that you haven't played at any given time so the details also apply to when you're world building like in a novel and you have to generate 20 characters all who have consistent you know need to have consistent inner lives and goals and all that plus if you're doing something in sci-fi or speculative fiction which i often do you're making up a kind of a new world uh that has new elements in it um i uh, the, the novel we spoke about before light of the jedi was it's a star wars project obviously jedi and it introduced a new era in star wars about 200 years before anything we'd seen and what that meant is that you're making up all these new vehicles, you're making up all these new characters, you're making up all these new like, lightsaber types, all of this stuff that you then have to keep track of in your head to make it believable to the reader. So that for sure. Um, and then finally, I think the biggest thing that it helped me with is when you're, when you're a lawyer, you sit down in the morning and you kind of can't really, I mean, you can't stand up, it's not Amazon, but like, you, know, you, you, you have to keep working until the job is done. And sometimes that job is done at five, often not. More often, it's done at nine, ten, eleven, twelve, whatever a time at night, and so that's very analogous to writing because you sit down, you start telling your story, and you have a word count you need to hit, perhaps that day, um, or you just have a, a script you need to finish, or whatever it is. And being doing it for law helped me do it for for fiction, and I, I I think it's it's a really really valuable skill that not every writer has.
0: And also, you mentioned so I just have jotted down here: Star Wars, X Men, Daredevil, Superman. Mm-hmm. Swamp Thing. I'm sure there's a, there's a litany of others. When yeah. you go to the Amazon profile page. There's all kinds of comics that you've been involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about all of those is is that um, the background research. So if I were to go write a Swamp Thing or a Daredevil or an X Men or you know you can't just hop in there and <laughs> and add to the story. You have to be a master of the source material. And so that law background, being able to research um, yeah. and pull and think, I'm sure helps you there as well.
1: I, that's absolutely right. I mean, Swamp Thing's a great example, right? So Swamp Thing. So in in superhero comics, uh, there are two really significant players: Marvel and DC, right? And and Marvel has Spider Man and the X Men and so on, and DC has Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, uh, and a lot of, and a million other characters that go along with them. And if you are fortunate enough to be invited to write some of those characters for either of those companies, they're basically like, you know, that is all of the major league baseball and comics. I mean, there's many, many types of comics. Superheroes are not the be all and end all, but if you wanna write that kind of story, they're really the only two games in town. And you don't get asked to do it unless you are really familiar with the backstories of, of literally hundreds of characters. Um, you need to be able to identify them by sight, by name. You need to know something about their, their fictional backgrounds, uh, their relationships with the other 200 characters in the universe, like it's a very, it's a very, very complicated thing, especially because it's not like you just have to learn it once. That that set of backgrounds for the characters constantly gets reinvented. Like, yes, Batman, you kind of know his his backstory, right? His parents were killed in Crime Alley. He grew up with Bruce Wayne, the whole thing. But the way, like, say his Robins, right? Like who is Batman's who is Robin right now? You probably don't know. And I think I think it's Damian Wayne, which is one of his many sort of adopted words. This one is actually his, his real son, um, but I could be wrong because I haven't worked for DC in a while and it changes all the time. For all I know, it's some new person that I haven't met. And so that kind of thing, I call it the churn and it is very real and it's a very difficult thing to stay on top of. Um, and I, again, I think your, your point is well taken that a legal background, being able to research in depth and quickly Helps a lot when you're getting up to speed on a new set of characters.
0: What's harder, writing for writing a novel or writing a comic?
1: They're extremely I get this question a lot, understandably. They're extremely different disciplines. Writing a comic is like being part of a band, you know, and you are, you know, you're you're the songwriter, but not the only songwriter. And and you you come in with a bunch of ideas and lyrics and so on and so forth, but then the band really takes it and runs with it and makes it what it is. Uh, and so that's obviously the artist and the colorist and the letterer and the editor. And everybody comes together to make a final creative product. Whereas with a novel, I am a one-man band. I am making all the decisions about how to focus the reader's attention, about where the story is going to go, how it's going to play out, what the themes are. All of that stuff is is on my shoulders, which is obviously good and bad. Uh, as a as a control freak type, it's nice to be able to control the narrative. And really, I, the, the thing that I like the most about it is if you want to draw the reader's eye to a telephone on a desk, that's you can do it by just focusing them on that and explaining and describing that telephone. Whereas in a comic, if you want that to happen, you have to basically ask the artist to do it. And the way that they decide to emphasize that in the panel might not be the way that you had seen it in your head. That's okay. It's part of the process. And it's actually they're better at their job than I am at trying to ask them to do their job. So usually the final result is, is amazing, but sometimes there's mis- miscommunication. Sometimes I don't describe what I'm, I'm looking for well enough. Um, or sometimes they just see it vastly differently. And, and so that can be, you know, just like, you know, bands don't always, it doesn't always sound as good as other times. Um, so that can be a challenge, but and you have to also really trust the people that you're working with. But, you know, I love both. Um, I love, you know, just to take it a step further, I love working with, say, you know, Star Wars or Superman just as much as I do working with my own characters that I create for my own stuff that I own because, you know, when you're working with Star Wars, you have the benefit of 40-plus years of other people's storytelling to kind of, you're standing on the shoulders of all that and and you have all the goodwill to the audience of, of, you know, how much they love Yoda or lightsabers or whatever. Whereas when I'm working on my own, I don't have to worry about the fact that you know, Yoda died in um, Return of the Jedi, so I can't put him in a story after that unless he's a ghost. Like, I can just do whatever I want with my characters, which is a freedom that's really nice in my own stories. Of course, you have to convince the readers that these stories are just as cool as all the stuff they already love, which can be a challenge. But that's hopefully where the artistry comes in and, and it all works out.
0: Who's the hardest character, either your own or for um, uh, someone you've written for, um, that you've had to write for?
1: hardest most challenging i would say the x-men are very difficult because they have like a very like it's a labyrinth x-men continuity is a very 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 there's just a billion stories and it's very difficult and they don't all kind of because x-men have different eras and in different eras the x-men are kind of different things and they sort of contradict each other so it's very difficult and everybody's a fan of different eras of x-men and so when you're writing a story now, it can be difficult to write something that um, that A, acknowledges everything that's come before because you have to know so much, and B, uh, that pleases, you know, like you're always going to upset somebody with every X-Men story you write if only because there are hundreds of X-Men and you can't put every X-Men in every story. And someone is always, there's a character that uh, we, we talk about a lot uh, in sort of Marvel writing circles called Maggot, who is an x Men um, that... It is the definition of a cult character, like not not beloved by any means, but some people love him. And so if if you don't put that character in your book, it's like, well, where the hell's Maggot? You know? And you <laughs> have to you have to constantly justify. <laughs> exactly. Why you're not why you're not including some of these these more obscure characters because everybody loves them. So X Men are really hard. And then I would say the other one I found very difficult. Um at times, not always, but at times was Daredevil. And the reason why is because I'm an attorney. I was the first attorney to write Daredevil in any, with any, you know, length to my run. And so there was a lot of, you know, I got a lot of lawyers writing me about that run and and asking me, you know, saying, well, you know, I'm not sure who exactly would go this way. (laughs) Um, And it was tricky. I made him a DA, a New York city DA. And historically Daredevil has been a defense attorney. And so I made him a prosecutor, which was interesting for the story I was trying to tell. But I am not much of a litigator. Like, it's not what I really did in my practice that much. So I had to do a ton of research into how that would work and how that would play and how Matt Murdock would actually operate in the DA's office. And I got some things wrong, inevitably. Um, but, you know, I, I don't. It's fine. Like, that was research I love doing. And, and it's part of the game. And it's, it's not the end of the world.
0: Well, OK. So I'm glad you brought that up. Because I, I've read... Um a lot of John Grisham stuff, especially his early stuff, uh, not, not, not as much of his new stuff, but but some of it, um, you know, I turn on the firm or, you know, one of the classics. Okay. I'm not a lawyer for start for starters. And I don't sit there and go, well, okay. You know, like, I mean, there are times where I'm wondering, Hmm, this seems like a good time to object or that's a weird time to object, but I have no idea. I kind of trust the I'm, I'm inside of this world. And this is the world that I'm operating under. Um, and I, I remember one time Grisham, uh, I think it was Grisham. He, he put at the end that, you know, Hey, you know, I used to be a lawyer batting practice in, you know, a bazillion years. So if I get yeah. it wrong, don't at me, bro. Basically. Um, yeah, totally. I, I, I try to operate and this is how I handle, uh, try to handle star Wars or any novel that I'm in that I'm basically reading a, a history. It's not a history, obviously, but it's a fictional history. And this is what the story I'm being told and try to take it for that perspective. Um, how much does that really, weigh on you like getting all the legal stuff right because I would imagine most people like me they don't know the legal stuff if you if you fudge here or do people like really come after you for stuff like that?
1: Um I don't know They're if they come words. after me. I come after myself. Okay. You know I I it matters to me. I'm the book I'm writing right now is set all over the world. Like I used to live in Hong Kong and it's a place I loved. And so the first chunk of the book is is set in present day Hong Kong. The problem is I started writing this book in 2019.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: as we know, Hong Kong of today is not Hong Kong of 2019. Right. And so, and I have not been able to travel to Hong Kong again, for obvious reasons, since, mm-hmm. since all of that happened. Um, and I guess maybe I could get over there now, but I, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to. So. I don't think um, so. Say that again. Sorry.
0: I, I don't, I don't think so, but you might. Could it's be. still closed. Yeah. Last I heard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm not, I'm not surprised. Um, so anyway, so I have to rely on secondary accounts in terms of people I know who still live there, what their experience is, how it's changed for people at different levels, right? I mean, I know you were a China guy, which so it's, so we're getting into it a little bit, but like I, the experience of a local, a Hong Kong local on the street is very different than an expat uh, who is sort of insulated from a lot of it and, and probably their life isn't changing that much. Um, if they're, if they're, you know, there and unfunded by a big multinational, whatever, you get the idea. Um, but I really want both perspectives. Like the 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 main character of the book, who's there, is is somebody who's who's some who's working for a Hong Kong based company that is not funded by the mainland. Like it's sort of it's a they're an independent business in Hong Kong. Um, but she's from Britain, and so there's she has a mix of kind of expat sensibilities along with. But her boss is is like a you know a, what I would have called then a local, and so. Um. You know, I, haven't, I, haven't, I lived in, in Hong Kong in the early 90s. So it's been a really long time since I was there. And it's like, I lived there pre-Handover. Um, but it's a bit, I'm digressing a little bit. But my point is that with that, or with, you know, the second section of the book is set in 1789, Massachusetts. And like that has a bunch of details that are extremely challenging to, to nail down. Like what, you know, so many, many things. Uh, but I try and I, I know that I will make mistakes. And I know that. Anybody who happens to be an aficionado of 1789 Massachusetts is probably going to have things they would say to me. But how many of those people are out there, and how many of those people are going to be reading my book, and how many of those people are going to be sort of noticing it? So I try to give it, at worst, what I call a sheen of authenticity, which is just like kind of like it feels right. But in in every opportunity I can, every and I do I do my homework, I do the research, I you know get a pile of books. Um, I try to give it more than just a sheen. I try to make it more than just skin deep authenticity, because that's what, you know, if you were to write a legal TV show, you would, you would, you've seen them. You kind of know how it works. You know, the That'd judges be there, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, the, the, the judge bangs a gavel, whatever, but the judges don't actually really bang gavels very much. So like, it's really, you go to, when you get to the next level and you know, things like that, where does the bailiff stand? What is the bailiff's job? Is he just some big dude in the courtroom? What is, what is he actually there for? Whatever. Um, so very long answer that went all over, literally all over the world, but I I try to make it good and accurate as much as I can without driving myself mad, because you can really fall down rabbit holes. But it's important to me that that I get it as right as I can, especially when it's a place that I know and love, like Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I heard someone say one time, I'll get the math wrong, but essentially, if you're going to do a one-hour speech. You need to have like eight hours of prep time to condense mm-hmm. it down to an hour. So it's kind of the same concept here: is you have to read, you know, x amount of books and do enough research so that when you write the book, you know exactly what to include, exactly what to shave off, and and where you can kind of fudge on the edges. But if you don't do the research, it's that it's that very thin level, uh, layer, and it can be exposed pretty quickly.
1: I mean that that happens all the time. Like in again, so in this book, the, it has. It, there's a again big chunk set in 1789 Massachusetts but then it starts leaping forward chapter by chapter to different different eras in history until we finally get to the present day and so there's a bit set in world war ii and um I wanted to I was like oh I'm going to do something at sea and you know what were you know what was the environment in the south atlantic in 1942 and so I start kind of poking around and it it there were, you know, I know that when the US entered the war, like it kind of changed things a little bit for the the German submariners and like the wolf packs, were we operating and all that stuff? And uh, I learned that they were, and there were these two, there were these two kind of like prime times for submarine murder, I guess, in World War II, the first happy, they called them the first happy time and the second happy time, which is kind of funny. It's not funny, actually. Um, Anyway, it's the, the first happy time, and the second happy time, but I was able to because I did that homework, I never would have thought about it that way. I never would have thought about it from like their perspective, which, you know, again, Nazis, whatever. I don't know that their perspective is necessarily that valuable, but it's interesting to be able to include something like that in the novel, because it's going to ring as a, to the reader as a detail that is not commonly known. Like you might've known it. I did not know about that, the way that that worked in World War II. And so when you do, there's always something like that. There's always a detail that you can bring in that makes it better than it otherwise would have been. And, um, I don't know. I just love doing it.
0: No, I mean, I think that's a great perspective because, um, I'm thinking about the Tom Hanks movie. Um, they had the wolf packs in there. The the uh, great. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I, mean, I, don't know. I don't know. I don't remember how accurate the film was or was it, but it's a film like that. That makes you go, huh? Did this really happen? It makes you go and, and you're curious. Um, so when you include some of those details, um, and, and from the reader standpoint, at least, if it feels like there's some authenticity behind it, it does make you go research it just to see what was the author um, deriving that from. And that kind of launches you into something else, Submarines Submariner, a point of fascination. We actually have an episode, I think, scheduled for that here uh, next month or so. But yes, um, so you, and you mentioned, you know, the, the Nazi perspective, and that's something, you know, the Nazi submariner in the engine room, his perspective is not the same as Adolf Hitler's perspective, right? Yeah, that's true. And, that's true. And I'm trying kind to of justify what he, what you know, who this person is, but it's just it's just fundamentally not the same. Um, and I'm thinking about some of the World War II books I have on my shelf, reading about some of the fighting in the Pacific, uh, Eugene Sledge or um, oh gosh, the other guy I can't remember his name, Helmet for a Pillow. But anyways, you know, you read their perspective, and then you kind of read what the what the what the admirals and the generals were thinking. It's like, mm-hmm. God, hey, man, whoa, 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 what these guys were encountering. And while we were sitting in there, it's like, oh, it's two different worlds, actually.
1: Well, it is. It's it's all it's all about you know what's within your arms, right? So for a submariner, let's let's talk about an American submariner in World War II. So it's you know like a you know what they what their job was was mm-hmm. not even within like we're not even talking about the captain. We're talking about somebody who's at one of the stations, right? So mm-hmm. like the you know the the sonar operator or something like that, or the radar operator, you know, and and their job was simply to, to just to listen. And to mm. see what they could hear out there, and do their best to keep, you know, their ship alive, and that was literally all they did. They woke up, they did that job, they had their whatever thirty minutes of of R and R before they got into into bed, yeah. um, and so their perspective on what the war was was listening through headphones and praying that they're not going to hear depth charges. Right. And then you look at like Eisenhower, MacArthur, like Patton, mm. whatever. Like their perspective was: how am I going to use all of these? incredibly powerful things that I have at my disposal to try to push back, you know, like, it's just, it's to say they're different perspective. They're like just totally different universes. Exactly. Um, exactly. And which is, which is interesting. And so if you're going to write, but the same is true when you're writing fiction, right? If you're going to be writing, you know, a bus driver, they're going to think about different things. Uh, they're going to have different considerations, different goals, different desires, different, even different senses of what their lives can be than say, a, you know, a president's. Right, just just by nature, like those people, the literally the world they live in, the world they see, the way they approach the, everything, every choice they make is is to some degree defined by where they are in the world at that moment. Um, but one of the great things about drama, one of the things, one of the fundamental rules about drama is you take a character and you push them out of that space where they understand everything. Um, you know, you 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 have that sonar operator on the on the submarine hear a mermaid talking to them and like what is that okay what does this mean you know what I you know I don't understand this and I don't I don't know what's going to happen and it changes everything or you have um you know the bus driver is suddenly you know running for president you know what does that mean how does that change how do they approach everything that's happening in their lives so it's you know thinking about characters in the perspective I don't always start there like some I probably should a lot of writers say character you start with the character above all that's where it all begins and where it ends really for the reader which i think is true you know you don't experience a book generally speaking through its plot you're experiencing experiencing it through the the characters and how you relate to them but i love plots and i love premises and i love themes and so a lot of, it it's not uncommon at all for me to have like oh that'd be a really cool thing to write a book about like i would really be like i want to write something that incorporates hong kong that has a global scope, what would that, how would that work? And then I start thinking about that. I'm like, okay, I probably should have to plug some real people into the scenario. Um, but then, you know, I do it backwards, but then I get there. You know, my people are people in in the books. They
0: exist. So you, you talked about Hong Kong a little bit, and I'm reminded of the story. Um, I was in Zambia, and I was going to go fishing. I was at a conference, and I was going between the resorts to, my, to where I was staying at. And mm-hmm. I was into fishing and I love to fish. And I was asking the, the taxi driver about the fishing there. And, you know, we're talking about it and all this stuff. And uh, I said, I love to fish fresh water. And I really love to fish in the ocean. Mm-hmm. He looks at me. He goes, the ocean. He goes, now that, that has salt water in it, right? Huh. That's exactly my reaction. I was like, uh. And I was like, and then I thought about it. Where Zambia's at? How it's far? Landlocked, it is- right? yeah, it's landlocked. How uh-huh. far it is from the ocean. And, I, and then like in all in a, like three seconds, I realized this person, their world, is so little concerned with the ocean that that they had to think about the fact being saltwater. They have a fundamentally different perspective on the world than I do. It's not a, a judgment of right or wrong. It's just different, and it yeah. was just kind of a. That's one of the things I love about international travel is you meet people with different perspectives. And I mean, think about meeting someone in the U.S. and they're not concerned with what kind of waters in the ocean. It's foreign to us. Um, but right. for this this person, their world, their perspective uh, is so the ocean is irrelevant to them. And that's just a different world to live in. And it was just, it's stuck with me to this day.
1: You know, what's a really, a really good example of that, that I think about a lot when I think about this kind of thing
0: is people who live in the Northern
1: Hemisphere versus in the Southern Hemisphere. Transit between those two hemispheres is actually not super common. Like in terms of where people go, they tend to go East and West. And so for a lot of people in the world, the night sky that they see is completely different than the night sky that we see. Wow. their constellations, you know, big dipper, little dipper, like they just have never seen it and they don't think about it. And like, they're just, they just live literally in a different world with a different sky. And so, and that's just on this planet, right? Like, And so you you start thinking about people from other planets and the way they think about things and the way, the way their perspective is, you know, that's, you know, viewpoint is everything in, in books, you know, it, it informs everything.
0: So one more question about just, um, about story in general. Um, I was reminded you mentioned World War II. My favorite show is Band of Brothers. Oh, um, sure. Okay. So if you remember Band of Brothers, spoiler alert from something from 2000, in a, in a true story, um, they're attacking the city of Foy, and um, oh Colonel Spear, or um, uh, Spears comes up, and they're pinned down, and he runs through the middle of the city, and he tells the other guys what needs to happen, and he runs back through, and the Germans are all around, they're shooting, and he never gets hit. And so I looked that story up. It's a true story. He mm-hmm. runs through the twice and never gets hit, and everyone is blown away. How do you balance the fear of this is too strange even for fiction but if you read history there is just some bizarre things yep. that you would never imagine have happened actually in history?
1: I that's a good question. I I generally if 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 an event doesn't pass the smell test even if it's historical I kind of don't want to like I don't want to include it in a book. You know, like you don't want to break you don't want to break a book for the sake of you know that basically you have this covenant with your reader when you're writing a book, when you're telling them a story, and and you establish a limit to how far believability is going to go in that book. Like every book, every story kind of has rules, has a framework, has a building in which it lives, and you don't want to step outside that unless there's a really good reason to do it. Um, like for example, I keep going back to this book I'm writing, but it's what I'm doing right now, so it's very much in my mind. You know, like the the first chunk of the book is set in the present day, and then really kind of without warning, it jumps back. 250 years to 1789 and you would normally not do that because it's going to it's a, it's something that is going to in theory alienate the reader uh but in this case it it's necessary it's I hope it's cool you know we'll see what my editor thinks when she reads it but um it's something that it's intentionally rule breaking it's designed to uh, snap people out of their seats and be like whoa what's what's going on now um, and and you know, force them into a historical novel. They didn't realize they had even picked up. Um, but as far as choosing historical moments that are like we crazy, outlandish, like some of, you know, there's tons. There's tons and tons of things you could pick. Um, I I don't know. I'm sort of sparing with it because you want to make sure that that the reader isn't like, well, that's bullshit. He's just making a bunch of stuff, you know, even if it's real, even if it's plausible. So um, I think Band of Brothers benefited from the idea that it was kind of known to be a... Uh, accurate. Like it was known to be a historical show from the beginning.
0: So I didn't believe it though. <laughs> I yeah. was watching it like, okay. This is where they added because there are some things in the show. That's, that's a little bit off, uh, nothing major. Um, but I remember watching that go, there's no way he ran through that city twice and didn't get hit. I went and looked it up and sure enough, it's crazy. I, um, uh, so anyways, um, when do you know a book that you've written is good?
1: Well, I, it, that's hard. Okay. Because I feel like for me, I basically write a book three or four times at least. Mm-hmm. So I write the first draft, which is, are, you know, often kind of garbagey. You know, it's it's more for me than it is for anything that anyone else is ever going to read. And it has a lot of – actually, let me take a step back because this this goes to a big – uh, writing maxim that I have that really serves me well whenever I get down on myself and my own writing, which is that you don't have all your good ideas at once. And you have to have, you have to get ideas out of the way before you can have certain other ideas. So over the course of the process of writing a novel, which could take a year two years, depends on the book. Um, you, you literally cannot have ideas in like month 18 of that process in month two of that process, it simply cannot happen because you have to build up the scaffold, just the way that you can't like put the plumbing into a building that doesn't, that isn't framed out, you know, like it just, it's not possible to do it. And so when I write a book, okay, I, I can tell just like you can tell by looking at a house when it's time to put the fixtures in, when it's time to like, you know, put the paint on the walls, right? Because, if there are no walls, you can't paint them, uh, and and you kind of can just tell when a house is done. You flip a light switch and the lights come on, um, and the same is true of a book. Uh, I I just so a book is essentially kind of a set of checklists, and at the beginning when you're writing at the beginning of it, the checklist items are very broad. It's like, well, I need to write the chapters. I need to introduce these characters, these things need to happen, whatever. And then you you write it and then you print it out and you have a very, for me anyway, you have a very dark couple of days when you read that garbage draft and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm really not very good at this job. Um, and then you you go ahead and you start making a list of all the things you're gonna fix in the second pass. And you start fixing them, you just go go in. It's a very, very manual process. Go in and, you know, hammer nails and you start improving. Uh, and then you read that one. And at the end of that one, you're kind of like, okay, there's something here. Um I need to do there's definitely a bunch of stuff I need to do, uh, but there's something here. And sometimes at that point I let other people read it. I often don't. Um usually I'll do what I'll call like a two and a half pass, uh, my second and a half pass where I go in and, and fix the things I read in my second pass and make it better. Um and then usually then is when I'll let other people take a look at it. And they will read it and they will give me their thoughts and feedback. And I'll usually go in and do a pass against that. So at this point, I've I've done made three major passes, including the first draft. And then there's like that middling pass, that middling edit pass after the second draft. At that point, it's probably not done, but it's at the point where I'm comfortable showing it to the editor and the publisher. Um, and they are the people who are actually are paying the money for it. So they are the ones who come in and they're like, well, you know, this is good, but let's do this, 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 this. And then usually there's another pretty significant pass which so now we're at the fourth draft uh-huh. and then um i let that sit for a few weeks two weeks a month whatever however, whatever much time i have and then i go in and i read the whole thing again and i'm like okay these are the tweaks i want to make the small things and so that's really four and a half passes on any novel at okay. that point long answer to a uh, a short question is when i think hopefully god willing it's i consider it good um
0: you have to live it before you can experience it almost, right? So you you kind of live through the pain of the first draft and then you've experienced it. And now that you've experienced it, you go back and you relive the second draft and you've experienced that. And each time you're kind of building upon it, it, it sounds like.
1: it. It is exactly right. You live in that. It's, it's really like, you know, It I use the build the build analogy all the time because it's very yeah. much true. You know, you, you, you camp out on the site where you're building that building and that is where you live day in and day out until it's done. So you yeah. You clear the site, you put up the framing, you, you know, you put up all the interior structures, you drywall it out, whatever the whole thing. And it, it takes forever. Um, You really have to like when the magic happens on a book, your mind is completely in that space as opposed to this space. You essentially have it all completely memorized, which seems crazy, but you have, you're like, oh, if I change this word or this phrase on page 200, that means I also have to change this word on page 16 because Mm -hmm. you have it at that level of detail um which is a powerful place to go it's incredible it's like I find it very exhausting I don't always um I like it it's like when you've I don't know what I'm I'm using lots of metaphors here but which I guess kind of makes sense but it's when you like I don't know practice a musical piece so many many times that it's it's completely under your fingers you don't even have to think about it Mm -hmm. um there's a point where you become that virtuosic on the instrument that is your novel uh and you can just effortlessly discuss it on any level from macro to minor uh, to micro and, and any change you immediately know what the ripples effects will be across the narrative and so on and i think you have to get to that point with the book before it's done but it's it takes all of my mental all of it like everything i've got goes into making a novel and so I am glad that the novels I've written have been well-received so far because I think it would be a real drag if I did all that and people were like, whatever.
0: <laughs> so that takes you, what, six months, nine months? Uh, um, it depends
1: on the book. It depends yeah. on the book. So the my my preferred amount of time to write a book under my own name, especially an ambitious one, is 18 months. 18 months. Um, okay. wow. Yeah. Because that, because all those, so all those passes I mentioned, I do a lot of other writing besides just my novels. Right. And so I need time to do that other work. I also need time really, like it's very important for me to let a book sit. Um, Because when you have some space between those drafts, you can see things again you never would have seen before. You don't have all your good ideas at once. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's also, there's research, there's talking to people, there's letting, giving other people time to read it and give you feedback. Like to do it right for me, If it's ambitious, is is 18 months. I can do it in a year. I did if it's if it's a like a licensed, I don't do many of them, but if I were to like the Star Wars book I did, Light of the Jedi. That while it was all new characters, all new era, lots of things had to be invented, it also did have things like The Force in it and the dark side and the idea of the Republic and the Alien Races. So I had I had world building I could draw on. So it was a little less intense. That took me sort of from Start to turn in was about nine months. Although some of that was like during COVID, so it was. I think I could have done it faster, but mm-hmm. COVID.
0: <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a couple of things here. I know we're getting close on time. So you mentioned um, you were in Hong Kong. I know you you studied at Pian, I believe. Uh, um, some Chinese studies. So what's your interest with yes. China, and what got you to Hong Kong? Obviously, were you and then you were a lawyer. So were you practicing some kind of law in Hong Kong, or completely un- unrelated?
1: No, nope. I was I was there, um, this was before then. So I was there, uh, we moved to Hong Kong when I was in high school. My dad um, was an executive at a huge furniture company and we just, we moved to Hong Kong because he needed to, He was gonna be running the Asian division and so we moved over there. Um, so I went to high school there, HKIS, Hong Kong International School, which was, a, was and is an amazing, amazing school, American system school over there. Um, and so my interest in China was was partly because I was, I I moved from Michigan, like suburban Michigan to Hong Kong. And so that's a, that's a huge adjustment to go from even then this was, so this was early nineties, right? So it's pre-handover. So it was basically a British, you know, it was British, uh, but it still was very, very Chinese, um, very Cantonese. Um, and so very different than anything that I had ever, ever experienced before on any real direct level, because I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which had, you know, I mean, it wasn't like, like New York has a very robust... I live in New York now, and, and New York has a very robust Chinatown and, and Chinese population. Lots of, different, lots of different places all over the city have them, Flushing and so on, Sunset Park. Um, but for me, it was really like I was being dropped in the deep end of, of a totally different culture and a totally different way of thinking and a totally different history and language and all the other things. So I found it to be um, overwhelming at first. Uh, and then, and then, fascinating in the way that a lot of people—not um, everybody, but many people—seem to find when they when they experience a culture that directly that's so different from their own. Uh, and HKIS offered um, classes in both Mandarin, uh, Mandarin, and Cantonese, and I chose Mandarin because Mandarin is obviously spoken much more widely than Cantonese. So I studied, started studying there, uh, and you know, high school Mandarin is—you know—I did okay. Uh, it's it just there's you can only go so in depth in in high school. But then I I uh, I attend the University of Pennsylvania and I majored in Chinese there. So it Asian and Middle Eastern studies. So I took four years of Chinese there, uh, by which time by graduation, I was, I was pretty good, I think. Um, it goes fast, unfortunately, if you're not using it. So I'm not anywhere near as good uh, as I used to be. But the times that I've gone back, uh, the speaking has come back fairly quickly in terms of grammar and structures and making myself understood and accent and all that vocabulary, you know sort of hit and miss uh, and reading is the slowest, but if I'm there for more than like a week, it starts like the, the knowledge is there it just has to snap back into place so you know, in terms of like the history of it and why I liked it and and what I connected with, I mean China's a fascinating place. I don't have to tell you that like it's it's you know thousands of years of dynastic history, um, various ups and downs uh, you know the way the country is now is not the way the country's always been, but there are certain like i guess norms and themes that seem to persist throughout even the thousands of years i mean i you know I, i'm speaking about it as as a white dude in new york right like it's i i recognize that my perspective is always going to be very blinkered and very um unsubtle and and utterly incomplete in terms of what it's like to be chinese what it's like to live in china any of that stuff but um I think China is one of the world's great cultures and there's a reason it's been around for thousands of years. And uh, I think it's a very worthwhile thing to try to understand and study.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because when you read Chinese history, um, there are um, like, you know, you got the boxer rebellion and you're just kind of reading about the, the righteous and harmonious fist. I just, I just love that day. The boxer rebellion has got a lot of problems with it, but just some of the names and just how culture was handled. And um, also it, it, it offers you a glimpse. um, If you look at at these, post the Boxer Rebellion, um, you know, study the, the rise of Mao and stuff, just how um, you, you go back to a point earlier about perspectives and just kind of how some of the people in China felt, um, at least according to the historical records um, with Japan and post-World War One and Treaty of Versailles. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's easy on some level to kind of get behind some of those stories and understand and, and sympathize with the characters and, and then go, well, wow, I never would have thought, I mean, we know the history now, but, you wouldn't necessarily think that things would play out the way they do. And so it kind of gives you, you know, with American history, we're, we're very familiar with it, with Chinese history or other countries in general, you kind of see how things play out and knowing the end result where we're at now. Um, it, it's, it's, I enjoy it because um, there's a lot of history there to your point, And uh, there's a lot of perspectives and uh, probably a lot of that's still not been told.
1: I think, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that China has been, um, you know, there's, there's, obviously many 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 people there and i i think that the stories that that reach western ears even about chinese history tend to be told from the they're they're very rarely from the perspective of the people on the ground and there are many many people on the ground in china um and now and and then and the you know you hear about the emperors you hear about the dynastic stuff you hear about you know, the Ming and Qing, you hear about Mao, you hear about Sun Yat-sen, you hear about like those kind of high level people, which I think is true to a degree of, um, of Western culture as well. Like we do focus on kind of like, you know, but at the same time, I think that we also do a pretty good job of, 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 you know, I'm, I'm even, even, I'm even going to check myself when I say this, I think The way that, that that China thinks about itself is very different than the way the West thinks about itself. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a blanket statement that I think is, I feel uncomfortable making blanket statements, but I do think that that is probably true. I think that the way that many Chinese people see themselves and the way that they are part of of a larger thing is not exactly the way that say Americans see themselves as part of a, a larger thing, no. um, which is which is interesting. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's almost a philosophical question. Like, what is your role as a, as a citizen of a state? Mm-hmm. You know, what is your role, uh, as, as somebody who's, who's arguably, you know, depending on where you are and what you're doing, like you're, you're, you're there to support the state, you know, yeah. you're not there to sort of further your own goals and needs and desires. And, um, I think America, because of the way that's been founded, uh, is, is probably slants a little bit toward the individualist side. Um, and China with its dynastic history uh, and and obviously the party and all that stuff that's been happening um, is maybe stunt a little bit less that way. Although obviously that's a pendulum, you know, like there are times when when you could say China is very, very focused on individualism and individual rights and things like that. Um, it's complicated, just like anything else. I mean, there's a billion people there. The idea that you can generalize anything about that place is, is insane. Um, but that's also why it's hugely fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, no. And that's, that's the thing when you're talking about China, you had to kind of say, well, okay, uh, I'm speaking kind of broadly here. And I think it's a good reminder for those in the West to think about um, the fact that they probably are um, generally speaking, more of a collectivist type society, uh, one for all. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but but they're, they're more, their focus is a little bit different. They're not looking for a liberalized Western democracy like we have here in the West. And that's, um, and that's that, 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 creates these these um these different results these different thoughts these different outcomes um it, it's just it's, it's a different culture which makes it to your point uh quite fascinating and um
1: i think you know, something you just said is really worth thinking about and zeroing in on to a degree which is that like the goals are just different the way that a what is considered a successful life is is different right like there's, there's the concept of like filial piety, right? Like the way that you, you honor your, again, this is all, it's all of these concepts exist in both places. It's just the way that they're emphasized and the way that people think about things. It's just, it's just, it's vastly different on so many different, you, you, you take your issue and it is, it is just a vastly different thing in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of like social issues in terms of, um, I don't know, entertainment, right? Like. It's all just it's a different if it's, it's it's a totally different ball game and so I think if you're gonna you're gonna study any culture not just China really but any any foreign culture you have to leave as many of your biases at the door and open yourself up to what they actually are as opposed to what you think they are uh, which can be very difficult to do but um, you know I find I've always found it to be very rewarding when I can do it uh, and it's also a valuable school or skill set to have when you're trying to write stories about other places um, so
0: yeah, I'll just say this: If you have WeChat, uh, I can't remember the the feed yeah. functionality. Just just scroll through there; they have kind of like Instagram videos, and you talk about difference in humor. It, it's it's quite apparent there because yeah, I, I watch some of that stuff. I'm like, I don't get the joke here. <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah, yeah, you know, just I don't get the joke.
1: <laughs> it's but but they would say the same, you know. Like yeah, exactly. if they were to watch TikTok, you know, it's exactly. it is definitely. But but you know, we shouldn't be like digging in too much into like you know like a like an a narrative that they're, that they're like vast, you know, they're everyone all over the world has this, right. Because we come up with different cultural frames of reference. And, you know, you could talk to people who live in, in Alaska, which is part of the United States. And they're probably going to have kind of a different cultural set of, set of sense of humor than we do, because Alaska is basically its own country. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but it's, it's awesome. I love it, but they definitely have their own kind of way of doing things. And as they should, um, hell, you know, where are you based? i am down in Dallas, Fort Worth area. Okay. Texas, right. Texas. Perfect example. That's right, baby. Texas is, is very much its own place. I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to be in Texas many times. Um, you know, I've been, I've done, I do a lot of like, well, I did, I don't do as much anymore, but I used to do a lot of like, uh, conventions and shows particularly for the comics. So I've been at Dallas and Houston and Austin a ton of times and El Paso and whatever. And, uh, Texas is is unique uh, and in in a very cool way, right? But just like any place else, has its ups and downs. Which you're probably going to end the call right now by me suggesting that Texas (laughs) is anything less than perfect. But um, you know, it's but like compare the culture of Texas with the culture of Seattle Mm -hmm. or San Francisco, right? Like absolutely night and day. Um, To the extent that jokes a San Francisco person might make, a Texan Mm -hmm. like a random person from Houston might be like, I don't, I just don't, I don't get those weirdos from up there. So you know, it's, I think it's, uh, it's one of the kind of, it's kind of a good thing though. Like, I don't really like homogenous culture. I think there's a lot of, like, humans should always be changing, being weird and different and all that stuff. It keeps things interesting.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. It's not, yeah. It's not an indictment on one culture or the other, to your point, it goes both ways. It's just a, a starting spot, which is, you know, when you go um, to a different country or, you know, you're, you're, you're meeting with your people, just kind of understanding that some, that some things are, that they're, it's just a little different. And of course, um, the, the further the gap is on language and culture, it becomes mm-hmm. a little bit harder to communicate and it, it just makes things uh, different. But that's also kind of the intrigue. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, okay, well, huh, why, you know, why do you eat with chopsticks? You know, it's a very simple thing from a Westerner's perspective. Why, what's the history here? And does it make the food taste mm-hmm. better? And what, you know, why do you cook in these little pots in China all the time? You know, those are all uh, cultural differences that open up a world of exploration. And if you're going to be a curious yes. person, which is what I think we should uh, aspire to be is, is curious on some level. Um, that's what makes people interesting. Um, those are the things that you take and you learn. And you know why is this? Why is this joke funny? You know, like um, sure. Yep. It, it, that's this kind of what's the point there. So okay, I know we we're against the clock here. Um, where do we send people to the website? Amazon. Um, what's the best place to to connect? Oh, you? to
1: find me, it's, Well, if you want to find my stuff, um, if you're interested in checking out any of the books, which we I we haven't really, I guess we kind of talked about some of my stuff today. Um, the Best place to find things. I, I have lots of stuff on Amazon. Just go to Charles Soul. You know, search on Charles Soul. Lots of things will pop up. If you want things that are a little bit more personalized, signed items, like whatever cooler stuff. Uh, my website is Um I also have a newsletter that goes out once a month. It's not very uh, not very oppressive to your inbox. It just uh, has updates on what I'm doing and usually has some some cool special things that people can get if they want to. Uh, and then if you just want kind of to interact with me and sort of see what I'm thinking about, whatever random thoughts I have on, the, on a given day, I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, which is just at Charles Soule, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-S-O-U-L-E. Those are the best three ways to find me. Sign up for the newsletter. It's good stuff.
0: Okay. And when is your new book that you mentioned coming out?
1: Well, let's see. The new book is currently scheduled, assuming I finish it on time is finished for October. I believe it's currently scheduled for October, 2022. So it's going to be a while on that. But in the meantime, I have lots of other stuff coming out. I do a lot of work for, uh, Marvel comics. As I said, I'm currently working on a huge star Wars story in the, uh, the comic space, uh, that features Boba Fett, everybody's favorite oh, okay. nefarious, uh, bounty hunter. It's called mm-hmm. war of the bounty hunters. Um, and it, it, it sort of tells the story of how in between empire strikes back and return of the Jedi, he ended up getting Han over to, uh, to as well. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's, yeah. it's fun. It has a lot of cool twists and turns. Um, I'll, be, I'll be doing that until November. Uh, so that that's on shelves now. You can get all the different parts and pieces of it. Um, at the same time, I have an ongoing series for Image Comics called Undiscovered Country, which you might find interesting. Um, it's about the United States, right? So the idea is in a couple years from now, it completely seals its borders off. Like it pulls in North Korea. No one can come in or out. And it, it employs high level technologies so that satellites can't see what's going on. It does, you know, all kinds of like, you know, radar blocking, all kinds of stuff, builds huge walls off the coasts, blockades. So so literally nobody can come in or out uh, and no one has any idea what we're doing in here. And so you cut to 30 years later when it has been a black box for that entire time. And, you know, so so I and my co-writer, Scott Snyder, wargamed out a lot of like what would happen in the rest of the world and what would happen in the face of an American power vacuum um, to like Europe and and the East and so on, uh, which was very interesting to do. Um, but basically an invitation goes out saying, you know, come see what we've become, uh, send seven people from the two empires that have, that have emerged in the, in the wake of the United States leaving, send a joint expedition to come see, and, and we'll consider rejoining the world. And they go in, they go over the wall, their planes immediately shot down, they crash and they, they land in Sort of the western United States, like California deserts, and things are very, very, very. Things have gone very, very different inside the U.S. Uh, in that 30-year period. More, more than you would think they'd be able to.
0: I'm glad to um, pick it up. I, did, I saw that on Amazon. When I was doing research and I hadn't heard of that, so that is fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's cool. It's a good one. Um, so I'm doing that. That has uh, we're I think 16 issues into that now, and if, and you know more to come. Um, so that's happening. I have three more series coming out soon. I don't know. Like I, I'm always doing stuff. There's always things happening, which is an exciting place to be as a writer. Um, I would just, uh, you know, like I said, go to Amazon, go to my website, you know, pick up some of my novels. They're all, they're all pretty fun. Um, or comics, literally anything with my name on it, I'll I'll endorse.
0: (laughs) That's a good policy to have. (laughs) If it's got Mm -hmm. your name on it, you'll endorse it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and for the listeners, be sure to check out his work. He has all kinds of all kinds of stuff. Obviously the star Wars stuff is what caught my attention here. But as you can tell, uh, you know, I I think back to swamp thing, you know, as a kid, I remember the swamp thing TV show, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of um, franchises and stories that you're connected with. And so best of luck and look forward to your novel that is coming out next year.
1: All right. Thanks so much.